This is Heath Miller. Becca Leifer. Ed Mike Cohn. Derek Dimenstein. Jason Kupperman. Jason Miller. John Schur. Marsha Flesick. Mike Fruitman. Ricardo Baca. Peter Schwartz. Nick Storch. I'm on Promoter 101. Promoter 101. I'm on Promoter 101. Podcast activation sequence initiated. Commence badassery. Confirm host, W. Luke Pierce. Confirm host, Steiny, a.k.a. The Jew. Podcast takeoff in T minus five, four, three, two, one. Welcome to Promoter 101. Wow, episode 87. Thank everybody that listens to the podcast. Can't believe we made it here already. How you doing, Luke? I'm doing fantastic, Dan. Finally back in Nashville after a couple weeks of travels. Very excited to kick off episode 87 of Promoter 101 this week. We've got a great episode, including interviews with NS2's Darren Lashinsky. we got Glastonbury's Ben Chalice and three questions from the Ready Room's Colin O'Brien. Looking forward to getting into it. And we'll break down the news of the week. Hey, this is Mike Luganbill from Straight No Chaser, and you're listening to Promoter 101 with Dan Steinberg and Luke Pierce. Do you want us to visit your town? Let us know. We'll record the podcast from your college, dorm room, a conference, your office. We'll do it at the latrine at your military base. Whatever. Invite us to your retreat. We'll come hang out with our listeners. We love hanging out with you guys. Dan, you've got a scheduled appearance July 24th, just a couple of weeks away now. Yeah, I'll be at IAVM. It's going to be hanging out with The Rock, Riley O'Connor, Zinc going to be there with us, Ralph James, Brian Hill. It's going to be a good time, man. Want to tell us something? Just reach out. Hit us at steiny at promoter101.net. Shoot us an email that hit both Dan and I. We'd love to hear from you. Follow us on Twitter, Luke's W. Luke Piers. I'm the Jew. The show is Promoters 101 and now Promoter 101. So you can go with the plural or you can just go with the regular. Either way, it's awesome. We got both Twitter handles now. This is Charles Attell, C3 Presents, and I'm on Promoter 101. If you've missed any of the past podcasts, you can always catch up at Promoter101.net. This week, we feature a classic reissue of episode 45. Episode 45 and its amazing interviews. We had AGI's president, Marshall Vlasic, talking about working with everybody from Ozzy Osbourne to Elvis Costello to The Strokes. A fantastic sit down with her. We catch up with record label executive turned author Larry Butler telling us about his new book, The Singer-Songwriter Bootcamp Rulebook 101 Ways to Improve Your Chances of Success. That is a title and a half, Luke. It is indeed. And we had the stash, the man himself, Ricky for reals, Rick Farrell, turning the tables on Dan and I. A couple sets of great questions there from Rick. And, you know, it's about time you subscribe to the podcast. So, you know, do that already. Do it. Subscribe. Hit the button. Hi, I'm Pino Sayoko, Spanish promoter for 40 years now. Promoter 101. News of the week. 
time for some news of the week, Dan. And I know this might feel like ancient news to some, but I feel like we didn't necessarily get to cover or discuss some of the follow-up of Ticketfly's hack now entering in its third week since the cyber incident on May 31st. And they are still reeling from that watershed incident of a cyber attack. It's definitely the largest I could ever remember in the ticketing world. And latest we've got from Ticketfly is a Ticketfly app for iPhone is close to coming back online. That's as of yesterday, as we're recording this podcast on Thursday afternoon. But what we still know very little about was the cause, the method of that attack. Ticketfly hired some serious cyber and forensic experts to investigate the attack. And the dominating theory going around online is that the hacker found some vulnerability in the four to 500 WordPress-based sites that Ticketfly operates on behalf of their clients. Now, your partner, Jason Zink, and his company, Sherpa Concerts, was a Ticketfly client or is a Ticketfly client. And I'm pretty sure they offered up a website for you. So two questions. Can you walk us through why there were so many people with WordPress-based sites that were given to them by Ticketfly? What was that deal like? And do we know for sure that we should be blaming Jason Zink's website for this outage two weeks ago? First of all, Jason Singh's website is my website. We are partners. So anything you're blaming on Jason, you can blame on me. And it sure as shit isn't our fucking fault, Luke. So go fuck yourself. <laughs> Second of all. In my head, if there were four or 500 sites that were Ticketfly websites, I just like imagining that it was somebody specifically. I'm sure it wasn't. Well, if we're going to blame anybody, we should definitely blame Jason. Exactly. But here's the thing. The whole deal with Ticketfly is the integration. They give you the website. Everything just comes through. They'll even give you like your calendar schedule. It all links up how to build the offer. You can have them do everything for you. This is so appealing and cutting edge, especially if you don't have the technology or you don't have the understanding of the business yet. It's great. So for us, the only thing we really used was the website, which is a great host and it was a great model and they did great things. It was part of our deal. Now, at the same time, there's a lot of extra add-ons that you can get from Ticketfly, which were very welcoming and a lot of promoters use those resources. So when the system went down, promoters were basically locked out of their businesses in some cases. For us, it was a matter of, hey, the links weren't working, the system wasn't up, and we were without a website, and we're still not with our normal website, so that's a thing. But nobody could have expected it, given our friends at Ticketfly the benefit of the doubt. They're always great guys to work with, and you know, this is going to be one of those things that everybody the industry in whole is going to learn from, and I'm sure Ticketmaster and all of the other massive ticket companies out there are taking note of what happened and beefing up their systems right now, because it could have been any of them. Yeah, and full disclosure, why well, poke fun at Jason Sink and Ticketfly, and our management business was actually a Ticketfly client. We did actually have a festival going on that we were running in Napa Valley that had some reserved seating at the time during the hack. So I just have to give a shout out to the amazing support staff at Ticketfly, especially Jeff White and Jen Hernandez on our team for the around the clock efforts of keeping us informed of what was going on. I know from a leadership perspective, it was probably hard to disclose what exactly was happening during the middle of all that. But the boots on the ground, client reps, sales and support team were phenomenal. And unfortunately, this is the world that we live in. The shit's going to happen more and more often. Cybersecurity is going to be a concern, already is a concern for many. And this isn't going to be the last time that somebody is subjected to an attack like this. And I think the real test and real measure of people will be how they deal with it. So kudos to some great people over Ticketfly and Eventbrite who helped in this process. And we're wishing everybody an expedient full recovery here as they move everybody over to Eventbrite. Now, I wonder if that's an opt-in thing. Do you have to go to Eventbrite? Right? Or do you have to re-sign your deal? 
they are sunsetting Ticketfly's tech. Everybody will be an Eventbrite client. I don't know that they have the right to do that. I'm curious, and I think that that might be something that they'd have to actually renegotiate with every single client. Well, I can tell you this. Yes, you'll probably have to sign a new deal with Eventbrite, but I can tell you that there will be some negotiations, some consideration, I'm sure, but what will not be an option to you probably as early as the first quarter of next year will be being a Ticketfly client. You'll have to negotiate a new set of terms, reorient yourself with a whole new backstage, back-end plan with Eventbrite, but Ticketfly will not be available to you as the present tech exists. Now, I wonder if that means new signing bonuses for everyone. (laughs) I guess we should have Sarah Mertz and Jeff White on here to talk about it. Fuck that. I want to talk to Andrew about this. Like, let's find out if they're writing checks. Holy shit. What could this cost? Like switching everybody over and bribing them all to stay, essentially. It's probably worth the conversation. As a promoter, you got to be looking at, you know, a 20 pound steak hanging around your ticket fly slash event bright's rep's neck at this point. You know, (laughs) I want more than a fucking steak. Me too. All right. Well, that's enough ticket fly. I mean, fucking who gives a shit, right? Let's move on. StubHub is going to court, Luke. The secondary giant was denied a dismissal by a California judge on a lawsuit over an issue of trip pricing. It's the practice of not showing the fees until the end of the checkout process. Fans hop online, see a low price, and then make it to checkout and find out it's 20 or 30% more. So it's basically a bait and switch kind of thing, essentially. And God, it's just so bad to hear scalpers having to fucking defend themselves in court. I really feel for them, Luke, let me tell you. <laughs> you know what? And, and especially over an issue like this where there's already been so much of this going on in the primary. The way that, you know, Eventbrite, for example, I know we just finished talking about them. They break out their fees very transparently across their platform. But we don't realize is tickets start at 25 bucks. That doesn't include your 1495 or 1395 Ticketmaster fees. So in a lot of ways, there are other areas of advertising and there are other areas of marketing that are already kind of succumbed to this uh, situation. And unfortunately, it's going to have to go to court to get some sort of consumer protection in place and, and decide whether or not StubHub is has been baiting and switching people to buy tickets all these times. So I can definitely see, especially in a state like California, where consumer protections are high, that this thing drags out in a very ugly manner and has some precedent-setting effects in the marketplace and the way that we're able to market tickets. And I think it's all for the better. In fact, I actually learned this little tidbit of a fact when talking to our reps at Ticketfly, is that when you show a consumer a transparent breakdown of fees. And now this could be everything from, you can add credit card fees on top. You could add Eventbrite's service fees. You could add in a royalty fee. That's basically a promoter rebate. When you show those fees broken down by category as compared to one lump sum, there's actually a lower rate of cart abandonment that consumers prefer that kind of transparency. Now, I'm not sure how promoters are going to be about putting royalty slash rebates out there into the world for people. That's not going to be something that's going to fly. But when the consumer looks at it, they see those numbers broken out transparently. There's less likely of people leaving the cart and buying a ticket. Pandora has announced a partnership with Snap. Pandora will become the exclusive streaming partner of Snap's platform for developers. That's it for News of the Week. Trevor Solomon, Crashline Productions on Promoter 101. It's everyone's favorite time, the announcement of our Promoter 101 Badass of the Week. This week we are so excited to announce that the Promoter 101 Badass of the Week is Red Light Management's Stuart Ross. From his early days in Cleveland at the Agora to managing Puddles the Clown, he's done it all, making him this week's Promoter 101 Badass of the Week. And you really gotta think, he really has done it all if you don't even mention him being one of the founders of, like, Lollapalooza. The guy's just a badass. Big congrats to Stuart, well-deserved. My name's Carl Leighton-Pope, and I'm on Promoter 101.
In our feature interview this week, we've got NS2's big dog, CEO and founder, National Shows 2, Mr. Darren Lashinsky. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Dan. So you got to be the first promoter in history to be a sequel promoter, or would it be a tribute promoter as the name of your company is National Shows 2 out of respect for your father's company, National Shows? Absolutely, yes. I mean, it is technically a sequel, but it's ultimately a tribute to National Shows, a company that my father, Philip Lashinsky, and his twin brother, Gary Lashinsky, started in the late 60s. 60s, early 70s. You grew up in the business. Your father was a legendary promoter. You were breeded to promote, so to speak. It wasn't something that I expected to do, quite honestly. Yes, I was around my dad's office as a kid and concerts from, honestly, before I can remember, but really somewhere in the neighborhood of six, seven, eight, nine years old at shows and hanging out in his office, listening to records on headphones and asking lots of questions, bugging people in the office. So I spent basically, I used to call it, my summers were rock and roll summer camp. I would leave Los Angeles where I live with my mom and my sister and go to Charleston, West Virginia and spend somewhere in the neighborhood of a month to two months hanging out at his office and going to shows all over the Southeast with him. We were joking before, right before we started, that college degrees and GPAs don't play much into trying to buy shows. Nobody's asked for your GPA when you're buying those first couple shows. Right. I think that my report card would probably be pretty good, but no, I don't have a college degree. And when I started 1991, started in the business working for my father, I asked a million questions to the point where he stepped in and said, you got this, just figure it out. We, we became too busy too quickly. And it just kind of kicked in that, wait a minute, I kind of know a lot of this already. Just from being around. Yeah, a little bit of osmosis and a little bit of just trusting that it's okay to fail because at that point, for the first five, six years of my career, I wasn't failing as in buying shows and losing tens to hundreds of thousands of dollars. That came later. (laughs) (laughs) You worked for your dad for a while. At some point, you wound up at Outback? Correct. First five, six years of my career, I worked with my father. He became ill and we were in Nashville, Tennessee, and he moved back to Florida where my younger sister lives for the last two years of his life. At that point, I was literally in an apartment in Nashville, still working with him, just me and my dogs, and kind of looked around and said, I'm too young. I haven't been in the business that long. You know, I need some inspiration. And being on the phone with him throughout the day wasn't enough inspiration. And quite honestly, at that point, he was happy just doing enough to kind of survive. And I'm going, there's a whole business out there that I want to go tackle. So somewhere along the way, we were paired up with Mike Smartak to co-promote Lee and Rhyme shows. It ended up being Charleston, West Virginia, and I believe maybe Morgantown, West Virginia. And we started having daily conversations. We hit it off. We really liked each other. He invited me over to his office. It was himself and his wife, and that was it. He asked me to produce a Jeff Foxworthy fan club show at Municipal Auditorium in Nashville. I did absolutely nothing, but I was there because everything had already been done. And the relationship just kind of blossomed from there. It was a really tough transition to have to tell my father, thanks for everything, but I'm moving on. That was ugly. Yeah, I can imagine that'd be a hard path, but career-wise, it was probably that right step of figuring out what else can you learn. Absolutely. I mean, I jumped in headfirst with Mike and primarily was helping him promote comedy shows, which is not something I had done. I had been with my father, it was country and rock, basically just arena shows at that point. And all of a sudden I'm buying, marketing, covering comedy shows in arenas and theaters in a lot of the same markets that we were already operating in, but it was all very new. You'd learn backwards how to do theaters because you were only used to doing arenas? Not only that, but it was the first time I'd been exposed to like a one-to-one relationship, meaning you'd go 
and do a show and if it's Jeff Foxworthy, you're flying on his chartered jet with him and kind of producing the show and tour managing him at the same time or picking up the comedian at the airport and driving him to his hotel and to and from the gig and much different than kind of the world of arena tours where you feel lucky if the artist even stops by to introduce himself or say hi to you or, you know, I mean, they're completely insulated. And It's an interesting thing to start at the arenas and work down. And obviously that's something that coming in through your dad who had built that company and giving you those tools and those relationships. Whereas now you would start in the clubs and you would work your way into the ballrooms and theaters and the arenas. It would be a much different organic path had you come into the business without that relationship and learning through your dad. Through the course of my career, I've met a lot of men and women who their story is that they started out promoting club shows for 25 people on you know a shoestring budget. And that has never been my reality. And probably to this day, club shows, I see the value, of course, in developing a relationship and the A&R side of identifying acts at an early level and growing with them. But yeah, I started with major arena shows working for my father. So who were some of those early acts that you were doing? When I first started with him, it was a lot of country. That was what brought him to Nashville. He lived in Florida, called me and said, hey, there's something going on. It was like 1990. At the time we were doing Vince Gill and Brooks and Dunn. And I'm talking about 20 shows a year in arenas around kind of the Midwest and Southeast. And then it was Aerosmith. We did a bunch of those shows. The time, the early 90s, rock business in arenas was kind of drying up a bit because you had more of alternative music and we really struggled at that point. There was never a moment where we had like Red Hot Chili Peppers or Soundgarden or Alice in Chains or Pearl Jam playing Knoxville or Charleston, West Virginia or Roanoke, Virginia or any of those markets. That I think was his first kind of light bulb moment was, hey, he was seeing the trend in rock music, the downward trend and the upward trend in country and thought there's something here. I need to build a team bigger than just himself. He literally was a one-man shop in Florida doing 30, 40 shows a year. And that turned into almost overnight, 100 to 200 shows a year. It's a lot of volume when you're talking about arena business. The marketing involved in an arena show is not just put it in the strip ad and do some social media. Each one of those shows are marketed individually. And so that's a serious load. It is. And I wasn't exposed to marketing shows initially, but probably two years into it, the volume was so great that I had to learn how to do everything. So he would hand me shows to market. And to this day, I'm still reflect back on the fact that, hey, we're doing Brooks and Dunn in Knoxville, Tennessee. And he would rattle off the 14 radio stations you need to work with. And probably half of the PDs at the time were still, you know, before sort of consolidation, these guys were all, they were there forever. You know, it was obviously a cheat sheet, but it was a great way. Again, it's kind of the same story. It was a great, I didn't have to figure it out all on my own. I had somebody saying, do this. And it worked to my advantage. I mean, I, I learned the ins and outs at the time of how to market arena shows. So you wind up at Outback and in a moment where it really started to grow. And as far as indies, Mike had a different model than most. He was promoting nationally and going into every market as an indie, but he was working with the artist and kind of developed this concierge promoter service where it wasn't about the market, it was about the act and controlling the tour and doing all of it, but marketing everything and doing everything the act wanted, but getting all of the business. And some of that stuff exploded. Alison Krauss and Cable Guy and Foxworthy and Angville. It was very, very strong business. And you were there in the explosion of all of that. Yeah. 
one of the more solid independent offices too across the country. I mean, if you think about that murderer's row, Brian Penix, Jason Zink, obviously Smartek, George was an amazing buyer and you had this great talent that just kept going. Kevin Brady, Kendall was doing marketing. It was like this huge team, Ted Chapin. So much talent, so many guys doing so much volume and so much business. Crystal Pistol was there too, Henry Glasscock. Yeah. You really think about how deep that bench was. I tell you, when it was just the three of us there, incrementally, I met Jason going out and doing, I think it was Jeff Foxworthy at the Paramount Theater in Denver. And along the way, and I came back and I don't know that Mike actually knew him. He may have talked to him along the way and putting the deal together because we kind of just, we would both touch lots of parts of a show because it was just, again, there were three of us. As things started to grow and I had the desire to sort of capitalize on some of the relationships I had developed while working with my father, like Tim McGraw was an example. I brought some of that business early on. We were doing Soul to Soul and Mike had those relationships as well. But as we started to grow, I started to plant seeds or put bugs in his ear about guys out there that we should consider bringing on. David Lauer, who is still his production manager, was a guy that actually worked for my father and I as a marketing director. And I was on the phone with him advancing a show. He was working for Olympia Entertainment and called Smartac right after I hung up with him and said, we need a production manager. I know this guy. He's at Olympia Entertainment. He's producing shows at Joe Louis Arena and the Fox Theater. There were a lot of those stories along the way where I had a big input in the people that we brought in, some of which I had nothing to do with, but a lot of them I did. When we were building our company, there were bits and pieces that we stole from the Outback model. I love the idea of working with the act in a lot of places. Mike's model had it where the buyer went out, produced the show, marketed the show, and was part of every part of it. I think that you can't be everything to everyone. I like the assembly line set up in the Ford Platt kind of way where whoever's doing marketing is marketing all the shows for this artist in as many markets as possible. And it shouldn't really be the talent buyer's job. The talent buyer should be cutting the deal with the artist and the venue and the ticketing company. And then moving on to the next date and maybe settling it because you cut the deal. But like the idea of going to every show and producing it yourself and like being at the venue instead of buying, it's like, I thought something got lost. You can't specialize in everything. You buy, you oversee, but you don't market your shows and you don't produce them physically very often. You have production guys for that. We have very clear, defined departments, marketing department with a marketing director, Kendall Maffitt, production department with a production director, Corey Travisary, and then there is support underneath that. So very clear, defined departments. So the talent buyers buy the shows, negotiate the deals, negotiate the venue deals. But the reality is, is that the marketing department and the production department are touching a lot of those deals before they ever even get sent in, whether it's on a tour level or on a one-off level, because for me, that's their job. I want you to research the show as the marketing department. I want my production director to price everything out. We can look at a writer. We can know the name of an act that we've worked with before and pretty much come pretty close to guessing in any given market what our costs are going to be related to producing the show. But the reality is, is that I think it helps them become experts and them invested from the get-go when they're the ones setting the budgets. Who am I to set a marketing budget? I know I'll come pretty close to the right number, but I'd rather have the person who's marketing the show tell me what they need in any given market to spend on a show. Outback had a really big moment that went on for about five years, give or take, where all the comedians were huge and Down from the Mountain was big and Allison was killing it. And then Jam came in and bought part of the company and everybody's doing a lot of good business and Outback's still doing their comedy thing, but it's kind of come back to earth and they're not the it boy anymore. But you have been able to launch off of that pad into your own company. And that's where NS2 came to the picture. 
Yeah. And I would say that that launching pad, it was an opportunity to kind of do whatever we wanted to do. So you had myself and Henry and Jason and Damien, to a certain degree, creating our own path, especially me. I mean, I had a team and then Brian Penix became part of that team. They either worked independently or they work with me or they work with a combination with Mike's bookings also. But there was a point where for years it was described as a business within a business. So there was a lot of opportunity and probably out of just hands-off approach, which I understand looking back, it's like you're making a guy a lot of money being very successful. Don't fuck with it. You know, let them do their thing. I think everybody kind of dispersing throughout the business was having a desire for something else. Everybody's story is different of what that something else was. For me, it was having my own company and meeting Larry and Fred Frank. And that was kind of a light bulb moment of, hey, look at what else is out there. Look at the business that we're doing together. We can do even more of this. And they came to me with a story of, take what you're doing, take what we're doing. There's something here that we can expand upon. Jam got involved with that amazing team that he had built. He's doing incredible things throughout the industry. Yeah. I mean, again, there was an opportunity for a lot of people to do a lot of great work there. And as we built that, all the people that you've named, these are all handpicked people. So the talent was already there. That's why they ended up there, because we noticed that and brought that into the fold. And then it, they continued on their paths. So how many shows is NS2 doing a year at this point? Somewhere just north of 400. That's a lot of volume, but you're promoting at all levels. You do a little bit of club. You do a lot of theater. You do some arena. Right. Promoting all over the country, but for the most part, on this side of the Rockies, 80% of that? Yeah. So I look at it as we have two sort of silos of business. We have the one-off business, which I would include our exclusive theaters in the one-off business, because that's certainly what they are. And that's Sandler Center in Virginia Beach, which we partner with Brock Jones on. And then we have the Carolina Theater of Durham. Charleston Music Hall and the CMA Theater here at the Country Music Hall of Fame in Nashville. That kind of falls under its exclusive booking deals, but it's still one-off concerts. And then as a company, all of the brands, which is NS2, FPC Live, together we do national tours. Currently, we just finished Avenged Sevenfold Breaking Benjamin. Brantley Gilbert is, we're in the middle of that. This is, I think, our fourth or fifth tour that we've done with him since 2012 when we were first introduced him when he was out with Eric Church on the Blood, Sweat & Beers tour. And then now moving into other touring opportunities. Up until the last couple of months, you guys have been doing A-level tiered acts as an independent and getting them nationally, which is kind of unheard of. Yeah. You know, it's a combination of the desire to stay competitive in the arena world where there are so few one-offs anymore. And knowing that we bring a special set of skills and attention to our clients, we're not doing more than I think at any given time, a few tours, we certainly could do more because the reality is, is that most of them end up being 30, 40 cities and there's not a lot of overlap and we have quite a staff that can handle it. But it was certainly the desire to figure out a way to stay active in arena business and capitalize on the relationships that we have with managers who see that we're going to micro focus on every detail about every show and not to the point of not being able to accomplish a large volume, but sort of super serve our clients. Let's talk about the Larry and Frank component. So they've been in the business forever and like you, they're second generation and they've got some deep relationships. What are the things that you learned from them? I think number one on the side of talent acquisition and managing relationships certainly has to be developing a relationship with managers. 
So much of the business and the volume that I do, quite honestly, is through amazing relationships with agents, never taking anything away from that. But that tends to be one to six at a time kind of business because you know I know where to take an act. I'm not afraid to take the risk. My batting average is great. So therefore, the artist batting average is great. But they brought a different focus. They have some amazing long-term relationships with managers. Granted, I do as well, but somewhat of a different level when they're coming in saying, we're doing 20 markets with Red Hot Chili Peppers or Metallica or stuff like that. That was not a world that I was operating in. I was trying to get a date here or get a date there and taking a different path that was not really leading to success on that side of things at that level. They put you in the idea of buying runs and tours with next level acts and they helped you make that leap. Yeah. I mean, because before I started NS2, I was working with them on Avenged Sevenfold and it was a tour. It was, if it wasn't an entire tour, it was certainly a run of 20 shows, part of which was throughout kind of my quote unquote territory in the Southeast, which is kind of what I'm viewed as to a lot of folks. Yeah. And you guys co-promote a lot. You work with everybody. You work co-promote with AEG, co-promote with Live Nation, co-promote with us. You guys mix and match and do whatever you have to do to play the game. Yeah. You know, I sort of straddle between wanting to stay loyal to good people like you and Jason, and we do great business together, but then also really focusing on what assets is that, and I would hate to say local promoter, but what assets is that promoter bringing to this deal. And along the way, again, coming from a family business where you're really fighting for every show, not wanting to partner because of looking at the bottom line to then working for Outback Concerts, Mike had a whole different set of partners he worked with. And one by one, I kind of went in and said, hey, what is this person really bringing to this deal? Long answer to an easy question is just kind of, yes, I value co-promoting shows with partners, but I'm hypercritical and I should be of myself as well and what we bring. It's not always that I'm allowing someone to co-promote a show. I'm not trying to portray it that way. Well, in some cases you are. If you're controlling the tour, you get those are decisions you get to make and that's the seat you get to be in. I know it's a tough conversation to have with a potential co-promoter to sort of set the table, for example, in our exclusive theaters. And you might have a promoter who has a relationship with a specific act. They want to come in and co-promote the show. And quite honestly, my first reaction to whether it's myself or another talent buyer is, okay, wait a minute, can we go get this show? Because we're on the hook for doing 40, 50, 60 shows a year in this building and we take shots on shows that lose money. And if this is a show that we think is a winner, I don't know that I want them in. And and also there's a thing with certain promoters that, you know, you let them in and they're in, and then you have to start policing what they're doing in your room, whether that's that they now know the landscape and the deal, and they're making offers on their own going, Hey, this is what I'm bringing you. And I'm going, well, wait a second. I'm invested. I've made an agreement with whether it's in the case of the Charleston Music Hall, a private owner who owns that facility saying, this is what I'm going to deliver to you. And all of a sudden it starts to get eaten away a bit. There's a real balance between, okay, is this an opportunity that I'm never going to get on my own? Or, and then I guess sort of the crystal ball of developing a relationship with another promoter and how much more is out there. Like I'm realistic about the fact that you could develop an amazing relationship and who knows where it would lead to more than just that one show that I might be trying to keep them out of or include them in. The balance of what's being brought to the table and adding value for you versus just giving away money for the sake of giving away money. I mean, as a company, we certainly take a really hard look at that. It's not just the decision. It's not an easy decision and it's not just, nope, we don't want to partner that show. I like to like stop for a second and really be thoughtful about that. How often do you say no? Is that like a weekly thing or is that a monthly thing? You mean to co-promoting shows? Yeah. Does that come up a lot? I don't know that it comes up a lot. I mean, just depends on what you're working on. It's really hard for me, quite honestly, to just flat out tell an agent, 
I don't want to work with them. It's really hard. So I'm trying to find some redeeming quality. If inside I'm going, I really don't want to do this. I'm trying to find, and that, that may be they bring a level of marketing because of a database or their social media followers that I'm trying to find a reason to convince myself that it's a good thing to do. Our marketing teams are very integrated. We do a lot of shows together and we market shows pretty similar. I mean, we all got our roots from the same place. So it's not that hard to figure out how it all led in the same direction. So I don't worry about that in the same way. Well, one simple word with that, trust. We have gained trust amongst our companies. That's much different than the idea of specifically when, as it relates to a promoter that maybe has old ways of doing things. I'm not really ever asked to partner. I would say almost in general, that to me is an easy no. If it's just like, I'm not going to hold somebody's hand because your office, my office, as far as our marketers are every day trying to understand whether their money is best spent on one social media platform versus another. I mean, we're as current as you possibly can be when it comes to understanding the ROI on whether it's social media or digital or television versus terrestrial radio. But it's trust. And we have that trust. And I have that trust with a handful of other co-promoters. But beyond that, it's sort of like, that's part of the problem. It's really starting from scratch with somebody, especially if it's a name you're like, I know that name, that person's a legend, but do I know anything about their operation? It brings my world to a screeching halt to try to figure that out. So what's the future of the business? The easy answer would be more of the same that we're doing. I do have a desire to continue to establish exclusive booking relationships with facilities. I've seen the advantage of having geographically venues that we can route and do multiple shows. I would never say block booking because I don't really believe in that. When I look at our roster between the different buildings, there are shows that because every market's different, we have a competition from other venues in those markets. So some get some shows, some get others, some get both, you know, or all the shows kind of thing. So I think on one side of it, continuing to grow exclusive relationship, booking relationships with facilities. I have a real strong desire to continue to develop touring relationships in addition to what we're already working on. And that becomes right now the secondary kind of daily activity because I have to manage a company and a team and manage the volume that we currently have. And we talk about this a lot, the idea of finding that next touring project, whether it's at theater level or arena level, it's not going to fall in our lap. And I tend to raise the bar really high and want to find something that no one else is thinking about or find it before anybody else does. If that happens, great. I'm going to continue on that path. And at the same time, kind of, we have conversations about what's out there that no one's been thinking about that's sitting right in front of everybody, that's right in front of our face. So that it's kind of nebulous. But for me, the growth is continuing what we're doing, just elevating it on a higher level. Do you have a pet peeve about agents? I work with a hand-picked group of people that I love working with. So, I mean, it's kind of silly to say my pet peeve is if I don't get enough time with them on the phone, because it tends to be most of the business is on the phone. For me, I prefer that. The dirty little secret is obviously we all have more to do than we probably should. So you can be up in the middle of the night emailing folks. But the reality is, is that I like to spend as much time as I can on the phone. I'm a talker. 
I feel like sometimes you can get to a point in a conversation where you're like, man, we've just been shooting the shit, et cetera. And then in that last five minutes of a conversation, something great comes out of it because you gave yourself the room to talk about your personal life, talk about bullshit, you know, that has nothing to do with, I need you to make, get this hold and make this offer. So I guess a pet peeve would be, it's more idealistic. I would like to have more time to kind of let things breathe a bit and really have meaningful conversations because they tend to lead somewhere versus the boom, 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 kind of run and gun that our days typically are. Are you a fan of the platinum system? Absolutely. I think coupled with like in Ticketmaster's case, verified fan, I see a path to slowing down the secondary market, controlling that inventory, and being able to sell those premium tickets the first time on the native system for a show. So you're following the data? Yes. The idea of verified fan, we keep talking. I mean, I, I'm bringing it up. I'm bringing it up with managers now, with agents, pushing, pushing, pushing for it. Because again, I idealistically, I feel like we have one of two choices. We either lock it down. We, as in u- utilizing tools that I have nothing to do with creating, but either lock it down or we need to embrace the secondary market and have it not be this, I, I hate to even say dirty little secret, but thing in the corner, like just bring it into the business and have it be part of it or have better technology so it goes away. Well, and obviously bringing the revenue back to the artist side of things and making it transparent is a win for everybody. Of course. And I think that the conversations that we have sometimes stem around the fact that controlling the ticket price on the desired price, whether that's right or wrong, is a whole other conversation. If you're saying this act, we want to charge X for, we could get more for it. The reality is, is that if somebody goes out on the secondary market and pays three times face value or more, you know, or even two times face value for that ticket, it's a different experience for them. It may be a one and done situation. And with a developing artist or a newer artist that maybe has been through a market once or twice, I don't want to think that somebody paid three times face value and they're like, check that box. I've seen that artist. I'm not coming back. When maybe if it was at the price that we set it at, they're coming back year after year, as long as that artist is still interesting to them and still creating music that they want to come and experience live. As the promoter, do you care if somebody's helping you share some of that burden of risk, whether they sell it or don't sell it, they're buying it and they're taking your risk away? Where's the problem there? Well, I think the problem is, is that in some cases, there's no real way of knowing what the true demand for an artist is, because I don't know what indicators the secondary market is using to gobble up all the tickets. And from one act to another, I mean, it's peaks and valleys. And well, why is this? If, if you were to lose on a show that's not selling, but you're able to reduce your loss because Scalper picked up some tickets, I'm guessing you don't mind in that particular case that they help carry the burden, right? See, I don't think that's real. In any world, I mean, that may be an exception, but the, I don't think that's the rule. If I'm doing a show at any level that is a loser, there's a good chance that the secondary market has intel to tell them they're not going to go gobble up a bunch of tickets for that show. That's not sustainable. They're not adding to the bottom line and going, oh boy, I'm glad that we sold, you know, $10,000 worth of tickets on the secondary market now, come to think of it, you know, because boy, that saved my ass. I don't believe that that's real. Do you have any uh, insight or advice for young promoters coming up? I think one, you have to be willing to work really fucking hard. I see a lot of people getting into the business who are looking at success and not asking questions about how they got there, not asking how hard it was, how, you know, lack of sleep, identifying that this person doesn't bitch about a single thing that they're asked to do. I think it's, you should look at the leaders in the business and say, I'm going to take that fucking person's job, but understand that there's a lot of hours and hard work that goes into that. And the advice in that is... Work hard. Darren Lashinsky, thank you for joining us on Promoter 101. Thank you, Dan. Darren was born into it and loves the business, and it totally shows. 
Yeah, this is Tommy Lee. Yeah, that T Lee. And you're listening to Promoter 101. Fucking turn this shit up, bitches. Tweets of the week. We can't avoid it. Title of this podcast, the time, some Promoter 101 tweets of the week. Start here, Dan. When someone is avoiding you in the hopes to prevent the inevitable. It's going to happen anyway. Man up and take your medicine. This is a guest promoter 101 coming to us from Spaceland Presents Chris Diaz. First world promoter problems. When your favorite band announces a tour and you're more sad than happy because you didn't get a chance at submitting an offer for your market. Been there and it sucks. It actually was Alkaline Trio that Chris was bummed about for the record. We're all with you, buddy. How about another guest one here? Let's keep this rolling, Dan. This is tweeted at us from the Capitol Alehouse's Lucas Fritz. The moment when your expansion plan slash band, one of at least, to grow into theaters is booked by the guy who runs the podcast you learn so much from. Hashtag teacher remains the teacher at the Jew. Sorry, brother. I, I didn't know you wanted this one, but let's keep communicating and talking and happy to treat you to the show if you want to go, man. So glad you reached out, though. When you learn about show updates on social media because a co-promoter fails to keep you in the loop. Funny thing about this one is it happened in two different markets on two different shows with two different people, completely different acts, different partners within 10 minutes. Could have been either of them, deserved for both of them. That'll do it for Promoter 101 Tweets. Make sure you keep up with Dan on Twitter. He's at the Joe. Hi, I'm Michael Yerke from Live Nation. I'm the president of talent for House of Blues Entertainment, and you're here at Promoter 101. It's time once again for our favorite segment, Three Questions. This is when a listener comes on and asks me and Luke any three questions they'd like. The only catch is we don't know the questions in advance. From the ready room, Colin O'Brien. What do you got for us with three questions today, buddy? Okay, working for a small independent club, I kind of focused my questions on that, and I think that's where you got your start too, if I understand correctly. And I wanted to know what skill that you developed then do you think has served you most throughout your career, continues to today, did so then? What's the biggest lesson you learned in your early small club days? Uh, Rolling up into a fetal position quickly and protecting my head. (laughs) You know, it's a service industry and I think ego doesn't serve you well ever. So working hard and always delivering quickly and living up to your word no matter what that costs you. People don't remember the people that do their jobs. People just remember the people that are fuck-ups. So more often than not, it's just like they're running the check for, is that guy someone that's on the fuck you list? Okay, no, cool. No problems. All right, nobody's raising their hand or bitching. Like, let's move forward and do business with him. But that's what you got to worry about in this industry is people that don't like you. People that don't know you or don't care about you are usually your best allies when it comes to pulling something off. Like, yeah, I don't have a problem with him. It's the best thing you can hope for. Like, that's the goal. I mean, every once in a while, you get those guys that have gold stars. Like, he's amazing. But for the most part, this is an industry of just you're not on somebody's fuck you list. That's the goal to stay off that list. Don't burn those bridges. It's a pretty good goal. St. Louis is a pretty robust market. There's like a lot of different venues. And I feel like I'm always reading more and more about the bigger companies like Live Nation and AEG doing more and more at those smaller caps, smaller club levels. I mean, business is fine for us. And it seems like St. Louis is doing a lot of stuff. But do you think that as those bigger companies move more into those smaller shows, there's going to still be a place for the small indie club into the future? We've had Michael Rapino on the podcast, and he's talked to this directly, that it doesn't matter how much conglomeration you have and how much more the big guys are doing on the smaller level, there's always going to be a place for the independent and the entrepreneurs. It's just such a big business. Since people can start doing this in their garage, you got garage bands with somebody's wife promoting their first gig or being their manager until you know that first thing happens and something really breaks on. There is room for everyone at a certain level. And in some cases... 
You've got independent promoters promoting Stadium X now. You see that Atlanta, the Foo Fighters were promoted by, you know, Rival. And you see that that show is also done in DC by Seth. You can promote at that level if you've got the skills and the relationships to carry you there. So absolutely, there's a space in this place for independence and not to toot our own horn, but Emporium does a couple shows a year too. This next one is what is something that you consistently see small indie clubs doing really well, maybe better than the bigger people? And what's one thing maybe you think that they could learn from some of those other people to improve? And if you have some that come to mind, maybe give a shout out to uh, some clubs you think are especially killing it. So what I find the little clubs do the best is flyering and making use of free marketing like social media, Twitter, Facebook. Facebook, what have you, the postings you can do for free. On the same hand, I find they're investing in marketing really, really lackluster. So when it comes to buying ads and social media and really maximizing your resources with a small investment, I seem to find a lot of them to be super cheap and investing into that world. And that's where development comes from is investing early and really getting the word out. A little bit of money can go a long way in getting past all the other white noise of what else is in the market. If we're going to give credit to someone that does it right. I think Nederlander Concerts, Jamie Loeb's team does it amazingly well. As far as a club goes, I think the Brooklyn Bowl is just the gold standard for how marketing can be done. Also, the Truman in Kansas City and Exit In guys in Nashville do a great job with that as well. So check out the readyroom.com to see what Colin's working on. And thank you so much for joining us on Three Questions, Colin. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Colin seems to be on the move up. Keep an eye peeled for him. Herman Sherman, Live Nation Belgium, Promoter 101. For our next interview, we're joined by Glastonbury Festival's in-house counsel, Ben Chalice. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed. So you have an interesting, very professional job in the industry, but you work for one of the biggest brands in all of entertainment and certainly one of the biggest festivals out there. Yep. I took an unusual career path as a lawyer, but I'd always been interested in music. So I was in a punk rock band when I was 16. We did okay. And then I went to university and bizarrely studied law, which was quite a shift for a little punk with bleach blonde hair and earrings. Studied law at university, and that's why I ended up as a lawyer, obviously. But, so instead uh, of objections, you'd be like, oi, oi? <laughs> no, oi was different, actually. Funny enough, in this country, oi was a hard right skinhead movement. I came to the business because I'd finished my postgraduate, and I was about to be called to the bar as a barrister. That's my professional qualification. So it's one half of the British legal profession are called barristers. The other half, or the other nine-tenths are called solicitors. You get the wig with that? I'm entitled to wear a wig. Of course I am. I don't, but I'm entitled to, yes. I don't possess one. I'll be quite honest about that. I've never needed one because I've never worked in court. I've always worked in effect in house. Is that actually a thing? If you go into a court, you have to do that? Not in all the courts now. It used to be you ha- in any court, you'd have to wear your gown, your robe and your wig. Now you would still wear it in the high court. And I think the crown court are senior courts, but I don't because I don't work like that. But I went to work in the music industry. So I did that by chance, really. I mean, I've been a social secretary of the entertainment office of my university. So many people you've interviewed will have been a social secretary or an entertainment officer from the UK. Because that's how you got in the business. Harvey Goldsmith was one. So Pete Wilson from 3A was a Rob Stringer, same year as me, social secretary in London. And obviously, I met a few people in the industry through that, mostly agents, booking agents. I had a 400 capacity and a 200 capacity venue in London at King's College London in the Strand. Quite nice to have. I did that for a year, went back, finished my degree, did my postgraduate, passed my bar finals, my major law exams. And I was sitting at home decorating my then girlfriend's flat 
when the phone rang and it was a guy I'd met through the students union who said, are you looking for work? And I actually said, no, I'm not. Um, I'm painting my girlfriend's flat and then I'm going to become a, a barrister, a working court. And he said, well, it's a guy called Harvey Goldsmith. Do you know who he is? I went, yep. When's the interview? He said, can you go now? I said, today? Yes, now. So I put on my sort of polyvicose black suit. That's all I could afford in those days. And a white shirt and a tie. Jumped on the tube and went to Harvey's office. Met Harvey and his partner, then partner. And I came on board not to be a lawyer. I came on board to do research into the Docklands Arena, which we were then building, since being knocked down. Did that for three months and rather enjoyed it. Didn't go to Live Aid because I decided it was more important to go and look at pedestrian flows in a leisure centre. But uh, at the end of my three months, the last day at my leaving party, Harvey's then partner walked up to me and said, why are you leaving? I said, well, I have a, a three-month contract and it's expired. He said, oh, we want you to be our lawyer because they'd worked out I was qualified. I'd actually got qualified in the middle of all this. And the day I was being called to the bar, that's what it's called, you wear, you wear your robes and you're introduced by judges and called to the bar by a senior judge. I was going to a meeting with Harvey and Ed and I was a scorching hot summer's day in London. And I was wearing a three-piece black suit, the same polyvicose black suit and a black tie and a white wing collar shirt, which was really painful. Pomp and circumstance. Pomp and circumstance. I remember Harvey looking at me and walking past me in the corridor and just shaking his head, thinking, what is this? They call me the student. What is the student doing today? Is that what he thinks is appropriate to go for a meeting? I didn't. And then I said I was going to the bar. They misheard me, both of them, and thought I was going to a bar. And so they went back to their office and said, I heard this from the secretaries and the PAs, the student's really odd sometimes. He's gone to a bar. They went, no, he hasn't, Harvey. He's being called to the bar. And once they found that out, they sort of invited me their lawyer. So that's how I started on the business side. Let's take a quick moment and talk about Harvey. We're talking about basically the Bill Graham of the UK. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. He was the game. Everything that played massive arenas and stadiums, he was the guy. He was by far the biggest UK promoter for a while, yeah. It's important that we point that out while we talk about who he is, just so we get the history of that. He, is, he was the game. I mean, everyone knew Harvey. All my friends knew he was because they'd all bought tickets with Harvey Goldsmith Presents and his little logo of a little fat man uh, on the right-hand corner. So he was well-known and he was publicly well-known. Whenever there was a talk show, whenever someone needed a voice from the industry, the live industry, which wasn't as important in those days as the record industry, they'd get Harvey. So he was on telly, he was on the radio, he was in the press the whole time. And he was based here in London, so... Yeah, he was based in London. We were in uh, Oxford Street and, you know, we put on a lot of huge tours and it was fun. World market-wise, this has got to be considered a top five market in the world, this city in particular. One of the biggest promoters in the world just by volume and market, but historical name, epic. Absolutely, yeah. I think everyone still knows Harvey, to be honest. Everyone knows Harvey at IMC. He's one of those legends now who've been there, done it, and in some ways sort of invented part of the business. Yeah, he used to be very vocal at Polestar when I was coming up, but he doesn't cross over as much anymore. He doesn't. You don't hear him yelling in the back of the room that no. we're, we're all mad. <laughs> yeah, I had my first, probably my biggest disagreement publicly with Harvey on a stage at I think ILMC3. I was his lawyer. I've been there about a year probably. Or two years. I've been there two years, I think. And we were talking about Europe, which is very topical in this country now. And there was an MEP, a member of European Parliament on the panel, me, Harvey and somebody else. And he was sort of saying, yeah, but I don't give a F about European law. It shouldn't apply here. you know. And he was going on. And I understood a lot of what he was saying. It's illogical. It's not designed for this country. We're very different. It's one size fits all. We shouldn't apply here or in France or Germany. And I had to say, well, Harvey, that may be right politically, but this is a debate about our industry. And in our industry, European law applies like it applies to all sectors. 
We may not like what's being applied to our sector, but that's a political issue. I got a big cheer for that, mostly from the European members uh, of the ILMC who are listening, but he's always been very vocal. Uh, but, you know, he's t- he took a stand on secondary ticketing a long time before other people did. And he was very vocal about it. And I've seen Harvey do fascinating things. I remember one time his Queen at Nebworth when he deliberately kept about a thousand tickets back and the touts were all massing outside. And suddenly the box office windows flew up and an announcement came over, tickets on sale. And the touts looked absolutely gutted because all of a sudden their captives flooded the market we flooded the market and you know that took balls to do because otherwise that would have been a thousand tickets that he had to eat which the deals queen did that would have been a major mistake that really was ballsy so yes i went to work for harvey which was a batteries on fire because i knew so little i mean i said i've been a social secretary in entertainment office for a year so i'd seen booking contracts i've seen performance contracts i knew very little else apart from academic law and what i'd read in books you couldn't learn about copyright at university in those days they didn't teach it you couldn't learn about trademark law they didn't teach it i went into work for harvey and i had to learn on the job because at those stages harvey had already developed his business so he had a film division and a TV division. I wasn't really involved in the film division to start with, but I was involved in the TV division, which was doing live concerts, which Harvey promoted. So we worked with one of the independent TV companies in the UK to put concerts together. And I learned. I just had to learn on the job, as I think a lot of people did in those days. Make it till you make it. Well, yeah. I mean, it's a good way to learn. Weirdly, I had a little, because of my background being in a band, I actually understood, sort of understood the process of making TV programs. I knew a little bit about technology, so I could sort of understand some of the words. But I'd have to go and ask this producer saying, what's a umatic tape? What's a one-inch tape? What does this mean? Well, I understand what sort of, you know, 35 mil is because I've seen that in books. But what are all these technical terms I'm being given? But I learned, and it was a fantastic education at Harvey's. Let's sidestep back to your band for a second. How big did the band get? Was it a hobby band or did you guys actually tour and make an album? Well, that's very interesting you say that. So we were a punk rock band. We were moderately successful. We were called The Ignorance, spelt wrongly. That's ironic. Ironic. Yeah, we thought it was very clever. And we almost got signed. So we were going to sign to a guy called Miles Copeland, who had a label called Step Forward. And then IRS. Yes, indeed. Stuart Copeland, his brother, used to come down to Kent, where I come from, to Gravely Village Hall and work with us. And a guy called Glenn Tilbrook from Squeeze would come down. They both worked with us. Glenn produced our demos. Uh, I've never heard Stuart Copeland be described as Miles' brother. Usually it starts <laughs> off as the drummer for the police. Uh, well, yes, he is the drummer for the police. And That's then like, and his brother was at IRS. I've never heard it told the other way before. <laughs> well, I know all three brothers. So I knew Ian as well. Sadly, very much missed. It's only my first arena show, Ian. Oh, right. Did he? Yeah. He's a, he was such a nice guy. He sort of took me under his wing here a little bit, the ILMC. I remember a couple of nights just sitting up drinking and talking rubbish with him, which for me was fascinating. Generous man with his time and his stories and his information and his knowledge. He was a lovely, lovely man. And Stuart was really nice as well. Miles, I never really knew. Miles was the label owner. And bizarrely, where I come from, Canterbury and Kent, Caravan, who were one of the prog rock bands, had been signed to one of his labels. And we used to know them because we used to drink in the same pubs. And I shouldn't have liked them because they were sort of, you know, rock and we were <laughs> punks. But they were really, really nice guys. They actually said to us, well, you know, Miles went bankrupt on us once. And that was a horrible experience. I was like, really? I hadn't heard about that. And they said, well, yeah, well, anyway, all went wrong. And so we sort of, we knew a bit about Miles, but not that much. And in fact, the day we were going to start recording an album, he decided not to sign us. So it was okay. You know, you bounce back when you're sort of 17, 18. Did you record the album anyway? Did you guys no, release No, we one? recorded, we'd done some recordings. We recorded a single. And then we did two more tracks for a compilation album called First Defenders locally. And we did one more single, but our drummer died. He died in a car crash. It didn't end the band but it stopped it for a while. It took the impetus out, really. And then I went to university. Also, the guitarist went to university. So we both went to the same university by pure chance. He's now a Michelin-starred chef, by the way. Really? Yeah, he is, yeah. Stephen Harris, he has a pub in Kent, a gastro pub, and I'm very proud of him. 
punk rock to Michelin chef to lawyer. And the other two sadly are dead. The drummer died, and then our bass player, who was the guitarist brother, Chris, died in our th- when we were in our 30s. Uh, so there's only two They're both that young. Yeah. Drummer Stan died when we were 18. So really sad. It's one of those blows in life you get, isn't it, really? I got past 27, so I must be doing okay. Critical year, I think. <laughs> so you're working for Harvey, you're in-house, you're learning film on the fly. Yeah, I did three years with Harvey, and I found I was sort of banging my head against the wall a little bit, and I was offered another job at a TV broadcaster, one of the new satellite stations, which is gone now. It's called Super Channel. And it looked interesting, so I went there for six months. I was basically also underpaid by Harvey, but there again, most people who you speak to might say the same. But I was underpaid by Harvey, I thought. Well, I was, because when I moved, I got a substantially larger salary. And then Harvey then spent the next six months trying to get me back, which was incredibly flattering. And sure enough, I went back after six months. For uh, much more money. Yeah. And a car and a pension and things like that. So I was a lot happier and a better job, to be honest, actually. Uh, more responsibility. So I did another two and a half years with Harvey. And then I did feel I'd reached the end of my sort of my time. And I decided to go and start my own business doing legal consultancy. So originally I did band management, basically, business management. Who are some of your clients? I specialized in picking up clients who were successful elsewhere in the UK, but they were UK bands. So I had two. I had a girl called, or lady called Anne Clark, who is British, who I'd never heard of. She'd had a moderate amount of success in the late 80s, but had huge success in Europe. I didn't know her. I met her in a pub in London through a mutual friend who said, can you help her out? She was signed to Virgin Records and EMI Music Publishing. She bought me her record sales figures. I remember flicking through them and suddenly going, wow, these are big figures, you know, even not superstar figures, but they were big figures. Yeah, there's money involved with that. There's money involved. And I said, but you're telling me you have no money at all. Uh, You're struggling even to have a career. That can't be right. And in fact, I I hooked up with Volker Koopman, who unbeknown to him, I was a first-time manager, and unbeknown to me, it was his first time as a German national promoter rather than a regional promoter. And we put together a tour, I think it was a 40-day tour for Anne, to try and make money. And it made a lot of money. Got a release for a Virgin, released by EMI Music Publishing, so she control her own publishing rights. Re-signed it to a German label on a licensing deal. And hopefully, I hope she'd agree, sort of changed her career in the space of a year into one where she could tour successfully, had a label who actually cared about what she was doing and understood the markets where she was successful. Did you get her paid for some of those album sales? I did get paid for some of those album sales, yes. I did have a sunset income for a while. I stopped working with Anne when I started doing Glastonbury in the sort of mid-90s. She sort of said, well, you haven't got enough time for me. I said, well, I have, but uh, I take your point. So it was very amicable. And I did the same sort thing with an old British heavy metal band called Praying Mantis. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, who'd started off great, done everything right, signed to a UK label, had done Reading, had played with Iron Maiden. And you can never tell with bands, can you, why Maiden become a huge international superstar act and Mantis just disappeared. Or so I thought, until I had a strange phone call from the then lead singer, who was an ex-Iron Maiden guy called Paul Diano. Yeah. Uh, yeah, interesting man. Uh, he called me with a strange Australian accent, saying he'd just flown back by a helicopter from Australia. And uh, I thought, this is very odd. Uh, anyway, I spoke to him and he said- Can you oh, fly from Australia to hear Of course you can't. It was a bizarre conversation, but part of that sort of made me very nervous what this man was telling me. Our receptionist had put him through to me and said, well, I think I know this guy's the ex-Iron Maiden lead singer. I went, oh yeah, okay, yeah, I know his name, yeah. So I spoke to him, he said, I've formed a band with Praying Mantis. I said, okay. I said, I've got me and a guy called Dennis Stratton, who's ex-Iron Maiden as well, and we, we want to tour Japan. And I said, well, why are you calling me? Why would you call me about touring Japan? He said, well, because we've got an offer. And I probably spluttered down the telephone. I said, you've got an offer from who? He said, from Udo. I went, Mr. Udo, who I knew. I mean, I knew of him. I knew the company. When I was at Harvey Goldsmiths, we used to, in effect, share tours with him. I said, Udo wants to tour Praying Mantis. You're having a laugh, aren't you? He said, 
no. And it was a day to telex. I said, well, can you telex me? And sure enough, I got to the office the next morning. It was a three foot long telex from Udo's office, setting out quite an attractive deal just for four large club dates in Tokyo and two other cities in Japan. And we should also point out Udo at the time was the Bill Graham of absolutely. that Asian market. Absolutely yeah. huge. You know, he was a really important promoter I and mean, a very good promoter. And That's so, the gold standard. Yeah. As soon as I got that, I thought, this is real. It was one of the most surreal two or three weeks of my life because on the back of that, I had a radio station call up, Tokyo FM, saying, can we record one of the concerts? We'll own the Japanese rights. You'll own all other rights. Then a record label called up called Pony Canyon, who said, we understand you're doing a live recording. Can we release it? And then a music publisher called up, Burn Music called up and said, we're a music publisher. Can we be the publisher for your new live album? All offering advances, all offering support. And you, you just for the hub for everyone I, to call I in. That. I can take no credit apart from picking the phone up. Genius. And tweaking some of the deals. I had no idea how big Praying Mantis were in Japan. I don't think the band were aware either. They just didn't know. I, think I felt like a bit of a king, to be honest. As I, I rang the band up to say, yeah, got you another advance, a record deal. They go, really? As if I was some sort of whiz kid who'd sort of created this amazing... Uh, I'm sure maybe you painted it that way a little bit. Uh, <laughs> I may have embellished the truth slightly to put myself in a better light, Dan. Yeah, I may have done, yeah. That's great management right there. Yeah, I thought so, yeah. And I actually worked with them for a number of years, over a number of albums, and it was uh, a good time. So they're my main two clients I had at the time. Both made money, so it was quite a good little business I had. And then Glastonbury came along. Of the things America has stolen from Europe, rock and roll, the Who, the Stones, the Beatles, and festivals. Before there was a Palooza, before there was Coachella, before there was ACL, you guys have been doing festivals for years. And the big daddy of them all is Glastonbury. Well, you did have Woodstock, which predates Glastonbury. But it always appeared to be a bit of a one-off, really. I know there were a subsequent Woodstocks, but they never you seen can't, it. Yeah, I think if you wait 25 years to do a second of anything, you can't really consider it a sequel. No, but uh, yeah, Michael had put on that first glass in 1970. It looks very, I've seen, you know, footage from it and I've heard stories from it. But, it, you know, it was it was a brilliant thing to do. He was a farmer with a farm who decided to put on a rock festival and give away free milk and charge a pound. And it worked. It sort of worked. And he did one the next year. Well, he didn't do it himself. Arabella Churchill and a guy called Andrew Kerr did it. Arabella was Winston Churchill's granddaughter. They did it. And I think that lost money. Uh, and then Michael had quite a long break before he put the next one on. Already when it started, it appeared to be iconic. It was called the Pilton Pot Party in the first year, and then it swapped to Glastonbury. It's not actually in Glastonbury. It's seven miles from Glastonbury. That's the nearest town, small town. And once he got going again in the 80s, he just kept going and built it into this beer moth. It is now, but it's much loved and very respected, I hope, BMOth. Getting tickets for this is amazing. Just to show the demand for this particular event, you have to sign up for the lottery and then be lucky enough to have the option to buy the tickets once you win the lottery. And then, and only then, they announce the lineup after it's well sold out. Oh, well, yeah. So we have over a million people on our database every year who opt in to register because you have to register for Glassbury tickets. You have to submit your name, your address and a photo because our tickets are personalized to stop touting and that has worked. Once you're registered, then and only then could you buy tickets when they go on sale, which is normally in October, I think. And they go on sale. We don't make the lineup announcement until April. Okay, things leak out. Some bands leak themselves out. Michael may mention bands at sort of conferences or whatever occasionally. But the, the, lineup the full is, lineup doesn't the full, come the full lineup is, Most of the lineup is not known until April. So, so this year is sold out and you guys have yet to announce the lineup. This year's a year off. So every five years, we have a fallow year. We've actually just done five in a row, but because the Olympics, we got out of sequence, the London Olympics. So we are having a year off this year. Michael's always done that. Because he's a farmer, he thinks it's right 
to rest the land. So this is a fallow year. We were considering doing another festival on another site, but it wouldn't have been called Glastonbury. But we're not doing that. The festival's so successful, you guys can afford to take a year off, obviously. Well, yes and no. It's because Michael doesn't run it as an out-and-out, you know, capitalist concern. He runs it very much as sort of, you know, a great big party for 175,000 people. It's a maddening number. It is huge. I mean, I remember the first time I went down, uh, it was 94 with my first festival. So I met Michael in 93, got the job. He wanted a lawyer to come in to look after the TV side because one of our broadcasters called Channel 4 had approached him to say we'd like to do live TV, which was unheard of then for live music events, apart from the big ones like Live Aid. But over three days, no one had ever done anything like it. And they said they wanted to do it. Because I'd worked with Harvey on live TV, it was the same company we used to work with there that had been booked to provide the facilities and the technical staff and the director and the producers, and they knew me. So they recommended me to Michael, who apparently said, that's like the poacher recommending a new gamekeeper to go and work for the estate. That's a very British analogy, you know. But- uh, I'm gonna have to wrap my mind around that one. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. It's like, why would I listen to anyone you recommend? You know, he's meant to be negotiating against you all or with you. But I went to see Michael. I think the thing impressed him most, he kept calling me a London lawyer, and I pointed out I didn't live in London about eight times. I used to live in Cambridgeshire. It wasn't a small holding by an orchard. I kept chickens. Uh, and he seemed very impressed by the fact I kept chickens. The reason I knew I got the job was at the end of our sort of hour and a half of bizarre driving around the farm, including a short brief spell where he went water divining to find a hidden underground pipe. Do you know what water divining is? No. You have like a copper rod, a Y-shaped rod, and people with the gift can locate water underground. Yeah, I was equally uh, as confused what was going on. I am puzzled. Yeah, yeah, no way that Michael staged that for my benefit. No way at all. He had one of his farm workers standing on a manhole, which they didn't know where it was. And there was a pipe running somewhere to another manhole cover and they couldn't find the other manhole cover. So Michael walked around with his copper rod and finally stopped. You know, I think he's here. And another, and the farm worker walked from the manhole he was on in a straight line past Michael and kept walking and went around 100 yards and said, yeah, got it. I'm standing in this field thinking this is the most bizarre job interview I've ever, ever had in my life. And then at the end of it, he said, well, next time you come down, bring me some eggs down. I'll give you some milk. As I drove back, I thought, hey, I might have got this job. The buzz on it's amazing. I mean, even the industry has a hard time getting tickets. It's such a massively big and cool thing. I think it's also important for the business. If you're a touring act, let's say you're Beyonce, she the year after Jay-Z had done it, because she was absolutely fantastic. And I think she knew if she came and did Glastonbury, you've only got to do Glastonbury if you want to make a really important impact in the UK. Send a shockwave through the media. Absolutely. Board. Because you will get national TV, national radio, all the press are there. Everybody is there and everyone's watching you. And the clever acts and most acts when they come to Glastonbury put on a really good show. It's rare acts don't put on a good show. We've had a couple who you thought you just got it completely wrong, but almost everyone comes to Glastonbury and they just somehow, like Spinal Tap, they turn the volume to 11. Extraordinary show. They're playing to impress the other bands and the coolest fans in the world. Yeah, they are, yeah. The pyramid stage itself is iconic. Uh, it's a bizarre idea having a pyramid-shaped stage, but why not? It's just an amazing festival. It's also huge. First time I went down, I said in 94, I was staying on a farm overlooking the site. And I remember waking up in the morning, I got there in the evening. I'd been down the month before and seen the bill going on, which gives you an idea. Remember, it was, I think, the Tuesday and the festival starts on Friday, so it basically started. I remember looking over and thinking, oh my fucking hell, this is enormous. And it was half the size then, it is now. It's a truly extraordinary place. When Jay-Z came down, they had a Radio 1, BBC Radio 1 DJ on the bus with Jay-Z's band. And they drive along saying, so this is uh, this is Glastonbury. And the driver's going, yes, that's right, sir. It's just, just started here. Okay, and about two minutes later, this is Glastonbury as well. Yes, sir, that's right. It's, it's still Glastonbury. Fucking hell, man, is this still Glastonbury? 
<laughs> they're driving on the A road beside and they finally go to the gate go, fuck, it's enormous, man. You know, it is, it's huge. The site itself, without the car parks and the glamping and the bits off site, the inside the perimeter fence is a mile across, about three quarters of a mile deep and a mile across. And then there's a sort of mile each side of car parks, coach parks, camper van camping. It's huge. You know, when it's muddy, and we do get mud about every three years, people think it's every year, it's not. Your legs ache if you have to walk from stage to stage, which I do. Golf carts and everything else aside, when you're walking the fields of these festivals, you do 13 to 20 miles a day, literally. Absolutely. You walk miles and miles. So I don't wear Wellington boots because I've seen people wear Wellington boots and seen the state their legs and feet are in later on. So I wear walking boots. And if it's muddy, I wear gaiters to keep my feet and legs as dry as possible. Thick socks. I look like I'm going on a hiking holiday somewhere. When the festival is in session and you're running from stage to stage, what's your responsibility that day? I know it's all hands on deck when festival's going on. Everyone that works is involved with many things. It should be nothing. If I've done my job right, it should be nothing because my work is before the festival and after the festival. But of course, nothing ever happens like that. Well, this is live rock and roll. Yes, yeah, live rock and roll. So of course things happen. So I work very close with the BBC. So I'm titled executive producer for Glastonbury. And there are two BBC executive producers. In effect, they run the show. It's their production for the UK. But I always have an eye on the international market as well. We do distribute the program around the world. We've got a VH1 in America still. But I'm thinking about what will, you know, well, that's great. That could be great for Japanese TV or whatever else I'm thinking about. So I'm working with the BBC and they now cover Six Stages Live. So it's a big operation. And then I need to talk to stages themselves to make sure they're happy. Then we always have, you always get quirks with artists. I go back to Jay-Z. Jay-Z came in and he wanted to use a, a pre-roll film. And we like to approve them. That sounds like we're being censorial. We're not at all, but we don't want anything which should offend our audience, as in it's, you know, it would be extremist. And I don't think Jay-Z was going to be. In fact, his film was extremely funny. It was about the alleged spat he'd had with Noel Gallagher from Oasis, which was taken, I think, very much out of context. He basically said there shouldn't be a rapper headlining the pyramid stage. It's for sort of indie bands, isn't it? And I think it was quite tongue in cheek. But Jay-Z took that, put together this film, which was uh, extraordinary. Uh, he got clips from everywhere. Licensed, may I say, clips from everywhere, including clips of the Queen saying sort of a couple of words and Tony Blair, our then Prime Minister, making out that they were supporting either Jay-Z or Oasis. It was really, I can't explain it, but it was really funny. And that was brought to me and said, can you come have a look at this, Ben? And uh, I said, yeah, yeah, I'd look at it. And I said, yeah, it's, that's fine. I said, but I think we could better get the BBC to see that because obviously they're live on air and that would be going out their cameras. The BBC producer came in and took one look at it and went white and said, there's no way we're a state broadcaster. There's no way we can show what you want to show. So that wasn't shown. It, it was shown, but it wasn't shown on the TV. They worked around it. And I had another pre-roll, which was a band called Neon Neon. It was basically, it was bare-breasted women thrusting pistons, women eating chocolate flakes. It was pretty raunchy, but it, I was actually asked as a lawyer, is that obscene in law? I said, no. Absolutely, that's not obscene in law. They said, all right, well, now take off your lawyer hat, Ben. I was with the deputy director of the festival. As a member of the, you know, the Glassbury management team, do you think it's appropriate to show that? And the band were playing at four o'clock in the afternoon on our other stage, second biggest stage. I said, well, we are an adult festival. We have about 20,000 children there. I said, but you know what? My view has always been they can turn around. You know, if their parents are that offended by it, I said, it's not, it's not, it is risque and it might be perceived to be sexist. I said, it's not obscene and I don't want to be censorial. I said, but there's one thing I must say, it was the same point with Jay-Z. I said, if you put that on air, if you put it on your screens, the BBC will turn their cameras off. The minute it starts, they'll turn it and they may not turn them back on again because the risk is you'll do it again during the set. And one of the band actually said, I told you he'd say that which I thought was quite funny, so I didn't show it. So you get little things like that crop up. A lot of it is just, it's it's the same, it's schmoozing, it's the same as everyone in the industry does, you know, making sure everything's running right. Mind in the store. 
It continues to be a more and more sought out festival. It's one of those things that the people that go to festivals around the world, it's their killer Majaro. They got to go to Glastonbury. Yeah, it's bucket list, isn't it, really? I mean, there's a few now. I mean, I work with the European Festivals Association, Europe. So I'm their lawyer as well. So they got, you know, got Roskilde, which is probably the, the European equivalent. But now you've got new festivals in Eastern Europe. Uh, what was Eastern Europe? It's not now. It's Central Europe, really, like Ziggit in Hungary and Exit in Serbia. And they're becoming pretty important events in their own right as well. well. They're very important events in their own right. With your law background, what is the one piece of advice that you give people that they need to do, that they need to know about law, that they need to think about when they're in business? Well, that's a difficult question. I was talking to a band, and I do get asked about bands. The one example I always use is you have to decide an early stage whether or not to buy a van or get a trademark for your band's name because you are a brand. You, a band, you are a brand. And if One Direction can not realize it's an American band of the same name or Little Mix not realize that it was a band already called Rhythmix, there are other problems around the world. You know, we had the, the Suede, had to be called the London Suede in America. If you don't own your name or you can't own your name, you've got a major problem going forwards. It doesn't matter if you're not successful, no one will ever know. But if you are successful, you will have a major issue coming up at some point if you don't own your name. Ben, I want to thank you so much for sharing some wisdom and talking to us. Quite all right. A legal eagle in the biz that seems to know exactly where he's going. You just gotta love Ben and God damn, Glastonbury is just the coolest of all festivals. Jim Glancy, Barry presents on Promoter 101. Birthdays this week. We're joined by our special guest and our editor. Connor's on the podcast, filling in for Luke right now. Celebrating birthdays the week of June 15 to 21, 2018. Friday the 15th, David Geller. Yes, David Geller, it's your birthday. You've made that very clear on Facebook. Everybody knows it. We all love you. Happy fucking birthday, dude. Stuart Galbraith, Michael Chug, John David, and Jeff Goodman, and David Geller, it's his birthday. He wants you to know David Geller's birthday is Friday the 15th. Saturday, Marissa Flynn, Howard Zuckerman, Steve Cook, and Kevin Shivers. Sunday, Bruce Garfield, Desiree Whelan from my office, Pete Olson, Matt Pike, Jerry Ross. Monday, Brian Hill, Larry Webman, Nikki Wheeler-Prince, Andrew Simon. The 19th, Tuesday, Anthony Lopez and Jason Miller. Wednesday, Sam Kinkin, Trevor Solomon, Ethan Levinson, and Ariel Hyatt. Thursday the 21st, Steve Catter, Lucas Keller, and Mark Norman from AEG Global. Happy birthday for everybody from the gang at Promoter 101, especially manager David Geller, whose birthday is on Friday the 15th. This is Meg White from ICM, and you're listening to Promoter 101. That's it for episode 87 of Promoter 101. We hope you enjoyed it. If you have some feedback, we want to hear from you. Write us a review on iTunes or email us at steiny at promoter101.net. The quote of the week comes to us from Bob Dylan. I consider myself a poet first and a musician second. We're back next week with a brand new episode of Promoter 101. That's episode 88 with Silverback Artist Management's John Phillips and Live Nation Spain's Pino Saglioco. Thanks, everyone. Until next week, wishing you sold out shows for the week to come. Cheers. Hey everyone, this is Cindy Lynott, Kira Finkenberg, Addie Ann Tarleton, Whitney Bond, Amy Miller, Dawn Holiday, Marcy Allen, Paula Palazzo, Becca Leifer, and you're listening to Promoter 101. Promoter 101. Promoter 101. And I'm on Promoter 101. Ooh. Ba-da-ba-ba. Ba-da-ba.